0: good morning. Uh, He has uh, done it yet again. The Lord has chosen in His kindness to grant us another week to be together as a church family, to worship Him together, pray together, to be fed from His Word together. Praise God for His faithfulness to us. Uh, If you haven't already, please be turning in your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 5. We pick up at verse 7 of chapter 5. We have had our attention drawn in several different directions as we have followed Paul through his letter to the Galatians. He's had a great deal of work to do as he's been writing to them. He's been building a case, building an argument, and he's done that by directing our attention into into several places. Uh, We've seen him direct our attention onto himself uh, and his own past back in chapter 1. Uh, He's had his attention on his past interactions with the other apostles, with the Jerusalem apostles in chapter 2. He's had his attention on the Galatians themselves and their past with him. Uh, And he's had it on the Jews as a people, their past and their present situations. We've seen all of that in chapters 3 and 4. I wonder if you've noticed there's been one place that his attention has been conspicuously absent. Up to this point, he has very much ignored, in terms of direct attention given to them, the actual enemies that have come in among the Galatians. He has ignored the Judaizers themselves. The only thing he said, back in chapter 1, verse 7, he said, there are some who trouble you. But he has barely dignified their presence with a mention, with an acknowledgement. Well, at this point, he has finished making his case to the Galatians themselves, whom he loves dearly. We've seen his love for them, haven't we? He now is going to turn his gaze onto the false teachers that have come in among them. And for them, there is no love lost. You will not have any doubt about that by the time we've finished hearing from Paul this morning. What we're going to hear, we're going to look at verses 7 to 12. We're going to hear Paul tell us five things about these opponents. Obviously, they would have been very helpful things for the original hearers to hear him say. Uh, This is a present, ongoing situation for the Galatians. They have been impressed with the perhaps the eloquence, the authority of these Judaizing teachers. There's uh, struggle, there's argument going on in their midst. So they, this would have been very helpful for them to hear these descriptions, these statements about the opponents of the gospel. Uh, but we know here this morning, don't we, the Lord has preserved this letter for his people because the relevancy of these things extends far beyond the original audience. Uh, so, so that the things we're going to hear this morning about opponents of the gospel, of the grace of Jesus Christ, are things that are always true about those who oppose his message. So these are five truths uh, concerning the opposition, those who would oppose the gospel message of grace through Christ. This is what we're going to see. Uh, Let's begin by reading. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is Galatians 5, verses 7 to 12. Paul continues in this way. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Five things he's going to tell us this morning about these uh, in opposition to the gospel message of God's grace in Christ. Uh, The first we see in verses 7 and 8, and this is really helpful for us to hear him say, even for us to hear him say in the way that he puts it. Uh, The first thing we see is this. Opponents to the gospel message actually lead people away from obedience. Opponents lead people away from obedience. If you were here this morning for Sunday school, adult Sunday school, you're in an especially good situation because some of what we were looking at uh, just, a, it's amazing how relevant that was to what Paul's going to say here in verses 7 and 8. Look again with me at verse 7. He asks this, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? What we have here is Paul, yet again, employing a metaphor uh, to talk to his, uh, his audience. And he's using here the metaphor of a track runner, a runner in a race, uh, you were running well, and some other runner has come in and hindered you by cutting into your lane. You know what that is? I've, I've never been on a track team. I know this vicariously. But I can, I can imagine uh, running on a particular path and being very focused, and then having someone cut in and cause me to stumble. Um, if you know me well, that's no shock to you that I've not been on a track team. But I think we can imagine the, the concept if we have not. Uh, this is, in fact, literally what he's saying here. The word he uses, we translate as hindered you. It's the word in copto. means to cut. So in copto means to cut in. And most everyone sees Paul doing something intentionally here. He is now directing his attention and his audience's attention onto these Judaizers. Those of the circumcision party, those who are pressuring them to accept the sign of circumcision. These who are about cutting. And now he's going to begin, as he has done so artfully through the letter, uh, playing with words and uh, in the way he speaks. So he's going to begin the paragraph here by talking about copto, cutting in. And he's going to end the paragraph by talking about apocopto, cutting off. He is Even in the words he's choosing to use, he is speaking right at these Judaizers that are among them. So the question he's asking them is this. Who cut in on you during your race such that the result is that although you started well, you're now stumbling because of what they have done in cutting into your lane? It's really important for us to see and to notice in verse 7 what he's calling a failure to run well. Do you notice that he calls it not obeying the truth? That's what it is, to fail to run well in this race that we have been called to run, not obeying the truth. To be persuaded of the truth so as to run well in the path of faith, it's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of obedience. When I stop living in settled reliance upon Jesus' finished work. Guess what I'm doing? I'm disobeying God. I am not obeying the truth. It's amazing to me sometimes how words spoken by Paul in one letter will uh, be um, be influenced, will be flavored with things he says elsewhere, or words that he speaks in one place will be confirmed in, and uh, enhanced by what one of the other biblical authors writes, this is one of those cases, when I read 1 John 3, it looks to me almost as if John had just finished reading the letter to the Galatians when he's writing. Turn with me look for just a moment at 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Last week, we just alluded to 1 John 4, and I was very uh, Uh, unhappy we simply didn't have time to go there like I had hoped to. This morning, I think we have time to go to 1 John 3 here. Uh, I'm going to read verses 21 to 24. And let's notice what John writes here. Verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Verse 23, this is where you especially need to notice, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps the commandments abides in God, and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. How is keeping his commandments manifested here according to John? It's manifested in two ways. Really, it's manifested in one way that has two sides of the coin. It's manifested, number one, in believing in the name of Christ. That is to say, resting in him. Believing his promises. Being satisfied with his work on the cross. So, believing in the name of Christ. And secondly, loving one another. Do you see how the two... Go hand in hand there in 1 John chapter 3. Time and time again we'll see those two realities going hand in hand. And again, it's exactly what Paul is going to now be doing for the remainder of this letter. I am obeying my Lord when I am living in conscious trust in Christ as my righteousness. And that then translates inevitably into a love of those people who have that love poured out in them as well. It goes hand in hand with a shared identity with the people of God whom then I will love and serve. Now, if that's the case, if what John is writing here is the case, what do you think happens then when my, you could even say childlike faith, when that simple faith in the finished work of Christ wanes? What will happen in my life? Well, if what we've just said is true, What will begin to happen then is that inevitably my love and service of God's people will begin to wane as well. Well, what do you know? Guess what Paul's going to say in the very next verses after ours this morning. He's going to say things like this. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather through love serve one another. Don't bite and devour each other. Watch out that you're not consumed by one another. This is the next things he's going to say. And we read that and we say, well, what do you know? (laughs) What do you know? I guess what John wrote is true. These Galatians, their previous joy and love and self-sacrificing posture that he has reminded them of in chapter four is now being replaced with infighting and squabbles. Their own experience confirms the truth of what he's saying to us in verse 7. You can turn back to our passage in Galatians now. Their own experience confirms it. And brothers and sisters, this morning, our experience confirms it as well, doesn't it? When you run well in the path of faith, settled, finished, simple faith in Christ, you obey the truth in a way that is unhindered. Stumble in that run and all manifestations of obedience are on the table and can begin to falter. Now, in verse 8, Paul adds to this. He says that this turning, that they are experiencing this, what he's called now a stumbling, after having begun well, it's come upon them. You notice he says, by means of persuasion. This persuasion, he says. And he definitively states, it did not come from him who calls you. This is the third of four times that Paul is going to speak about the call of God. God's calling to his people. That calling has been connected in Galatians to the grace of Christ. In Galatians 1.6, you're deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. It was connected again to grace in chapter 1 verse 15. He who called me by his grace. It's going to be connected to freedom. In chapter 5, verse 13, you were called to freedom. And then this is the fourth of the instances where he speaks about God's calling. This persuasion, in other words, which has led you to seek to win the race through efforts of your own, which has hindered your own obedience to Christ, caused you to stumble, which has turned your love into squabbles and infighting, (laughs) this persuasion most certainly did not come from the God who graciously saved you by his call. This is almost like what he did back in chapter 4 when he reminded them about their past with him. He reminded them of how they used to be, how grateful and loving and self-sacrificing they had been back when the gospel of Jesus Christ was prominent among them. If you were here with us, then you remember what we noticed that There's power in reminding someone of something like that. You remind someone of that and it helps them to see what they have now become by contrast. Well, it's the same thing here. Reminding them of God's gracious calling stands in pretty stark contrast to the way their lives are starting to turn. So this is the first thing that he tells them about these opponents. They are leading you away from the obedience that God requires. The second thing he's going to tell them, we see in verse 9, and that is that this persuasion, this influence of theirs, is infectious. It's infectious. Verse 9, almost a proverb here. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. This really is a warning in a couple of directions, although they're very much connected to each other. It is a warning about the nature of this sort of persuasive teaching that they've let come in among them. Here's what it tells us. That kind of a voice that leads away from the gospel message never just sits there. It is at work for its own ends. That's what an infection is, right? This message is working. It's active. And so it's something to be seen for the danger that it is. But the other thing that his warning here tells us about, again, it's not unrelated to that, but this is also, I think, equally a warning about you and me, what we are like. I mean, here's what we see in this warning about a, le- a little leaven, leavening the whole lump. We must not overestimate our powers of resistance to influence. This is the sort of thing that, that we see happening to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we learn about the Corinthians there that they are, at that moment, passively tolerating gross immorality in their midst, in their church family. And they're even claiming to be doing so to celebrate the reality of grace. You have a sense of kind of how that argument might run. And Paul has to tell them there in verse 6 of that chapter, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And you can see his point. What exactly do you think is going to happen when this sort of known, unrepented of sin sits and dwells in your midst? What do you think is going to happen? It's going to spread. It's going to spread among you, maybe in following after the same kind of sin, or maybe in all kinds of other ways that tolerating sin perverts our thinking. You don't seem to realize, Corinthians, that you yourselves have sin at work within you that will let this temptation lodge and twist your mind. You think too highly of yourselves and not highly enough of the power of sin to leaven the whole lump. Warns them of that there. He has to warn them of that here. And my friends, it's a good excuse for us to remember the same thing of ourselves this morning. We are not different than these Galatians here. We are not beyond the reach of sin's temptations, are we? So I could ask you in a very rhetorical way, unless you want to talk with me afterward. uh, How are you doing right now as far as your own level of fear and hatred of the sin that persists? Has your heart's hatred, I would use that word intentionally, Has your heart's hatred of that root that the Spirit of God has revealed to you in the past, that root of anger or bitterness or lust or laziness, has your heart's hatred of that thing in you been allowed to quiet down? We must not let it. We cry out to God, Individually and corporately, God protect our minds and our hearts so that we keep thinking and feeling like you do about our indwelling sin. And I think that's a very uh, balanced and helpful way to speak about it because how does God think of our indwelling sin that remains? God is patient with us, isn't he? He is confident of his work in us. All of those things are true. And so we have reason, in a sense, to be patient with ourselves because we are confident of God's work in us. But listen, there's a difference between living a life of grace and being patient with how God is changing me and a certain kind of patience with the sin itself. So not the same things. We must remember the murderous nature of sin. I've never forgotten how John Owen puts it in his book, The Mortification of Sin. We must be killing sin or it be killing us. We don't rejoice in it. And we don't doubt the power of God to work in the lives of his people so that we become settled with the presence of sin and think we are powerless. Think it will never change. It will never be put to death. No. No. God who works in us through his power is stronger than that. Now we can actually move into verse 10 before we even get to the third thing that Paul says about these opponents, because he brings into the midst of that warning about leaven, leavening the whole lump, he brings in uh, a statement of confidence. Look at verse 10. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And stop there for a moment. We drew attention last week to the fact that Paul is self-consciously speaking to believers as he's writing this letter. Um, He is faithfully warning them. But we have here him stating his confidence that these children of God, when they hear this, they are going to come to listen to Paul's pleas and respond to his exhortations. There are two things that I would point out to us here. Number one, when when he says, I have confidence in the Lord, uh, that word, have confidence, is used in situations where deep conviction has preceded this. So that even the definition of the verb reads like this. Um, to be conv- so convinced that one puts confidence in something. Right? This is the idea he's giving here when he says, I have confidence. That helps me because sometimes we can use the word confidence in a different way. We have children. There's oftentimes, if you speak to a child in a situation, you might say something like this. I have confidence that you're going to make the right decision here. You might say that. And maybe there's some confidence there. But that's really more of an uncertain hopefulness. Right? But you don't say it that way. I have confidence that you're going to do the right thing here. That is not the idea that Paul is conveying. He's conveying a deep conviction. That's one thing we need to notice here. The second is, I think, even more important than that. We cannot miss what he says as to the source of his confidence. Where is his confidence? I have confidence in the Lord, he says, that you will take no other view. Paul's assurance here, this conviction, this confidence, does not rest on, for example, any recent good news he has gotten from Galatia doesn't rest in any confidence uh, toward the Galatians themselves. His confidence rests in the Lord, whose grace will sustain the Galatians until the end. So in other words, you have two, two things that go side by side and must be seen together here. These opponents' influence is legitimately and dangerously infectious. That is true. Yet, God's power to protect and preserve his people is stronger than that. Those two things go together in the way Paul is uh, warning and counseling these Galatians. It's really important for us to see the, the uh, just how right it is for Paul to have this sort of confidence. We spoke about it last week, but we didn't get to really think very carefully about what the Bible says concerning this confidence. So I want to do that for just a moment here this morning. I want to remind us of what God's word says concerning this confidence that Christians have. I'll just give you a a survey here. There are many more places we could go. You can just listen to these. These are the sorts of things that God's word says about the matter of confidence in the life of one who is a child of God. John 10, 28, Jesus says this, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 1 Peter 1.5 speaks of God's children, and it says this, Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This faith that God grants to his children, God, God works through this to, in fact, guard his people, and he does it with the very power of God. He'll say elsewhere, this is the power by which things that did not exist were spoken into existence. That kind of power, that's the power at work in God's people through faith to guard them unto salvation. Uh, 2 Timothy 1, verse, 2, uh, verse 12, Excuse me, uh, Paul says, Which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced, same word he used in our text, that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. John 10, 27-29. Jesus speaking. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. I know them. I'll pause there for a second. You remember, uh, Paul made an important clarification in Galatians when he said to God's children, but now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, God knows us in this way, we belong to him, that's what that means. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I mean, this, in the statements he's making there in John 10, it's the entire point that he's trying to get across to his hearers here the sheer safety of those that belong to God through Jesus Christ. He says, No one will be taken, no one can be. What will happen on that day when one that belongs to God can be lost to him? Well, that will happen on the day when God the Father loses an arm wrestling match. That's, what will, that's the day on which one of God's children needs to be afraid for their safety. Last, Romans eleven twenty nine 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Very simple, punchy statement. The nature of those callings of God is that, that they are irrevocable. And my friends, it's just a small sampling. There are so many other places where God's word uh, works very hard to convey to his children how safe we are in the hands of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7, 1 Thessalonians 5, Romans 8, Ephesians 1, God's word works hard to comfort his children with this news. If he works that hard, we ought not come to a statement like that in our study of his word and just brush over it. So let's not do that this morning. Let let me invite you to just stop for a moment, take a breath, and just bask in the reality that you who have turned to Christ for life, you who are relying upon the work of Jesus in your stead, in the courtroom of God, Just bask in it for a moment. Exactly no one and nothing will ever pluck you from his hand. What are the trials of this life in comparison to that assurance? I don't say that at all to diminish the trials of this life. They're real and they're grave and they're painful. Stack them up against the mountain, of the implications of this safety, of these promises from a God such as this. And I ask you, what are the trials of this life in comparison to such assurance as that? And so it's quite fitting then, as Paul keeps our attention on the opponents now moving forward, it's fitting, after he says something like this, that the remainder of the things to be said about the opponents are really just Dangerous for the opponents, not for God's people. And that's, in fact, what we see. Uh, number three, second half of verse 10, here's the third thing we see about God's opponents. They are destined for judgment. He continues this way, And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. A couple of, I think, small things to clear up. The way he speaks in of this, Is in the singular the one who's troubling you whoever he is that does not mean that there was a single individual who'd come into Galatia and is leading them astray Uh, it's probably he's either speaking about the leader of that group or he's speaking about the group collectively as a collective singular Uh, but it is a group that has come into Galatia here to apply this pressure they're referred to in the plural in verse 12 in chapter 6, verse 12, back in chapter 1, verse 7. This does not mean that there's a single individual that comes in. Uh, secondly, it is possible, but I think it's unlikely, and certainly it's not necessarily true, that Paul words it like he does here in verse 10 because he doesn't know the name of the leader of this group. He seems pretty well informed about what's going on in Galatia. And it seems common from other letters. We see it in third John and with Paul in Philippians 4, then when people wrote asking for help like this about situations, they tended to name names when they were writing. So it's likely that they would have done that here and that Paul knows the people that he's talking about. I think the point then is what Paul's emphasizing is the relative unimportance of that person and the group by refusing to give them too much attention. I mean, he's still sort of snubbing them here. The one who is troubling you, Will bear the penalty, whoever he is. You're not dignifying them with a direct nod. This may or may not be what he intended. I suspect that another thing this does is broaden the condemnation. Now, he's describing things that are true of anybody that occupies that position. Anyone that would come into God's people and trouble them like this, guess what's the case for them? They will bear the penalty makes you think of what he said back in chapter 1. Even if I or an angel from heaven should come and proclaim a different gospel to you, let them be accursed. Right? doesn't matter who the messenger is. There's the same fate. So the point he's making about them in verse 10 here is, there is a penalty for their actions, and they will bear it. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 17. Powerful words. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. There is great danger. There is only destruction awaiting those who would oppose the gospel of God's grace in Christ. I think it was... Last week in adult Sunday school, someone made the very good point that justice is loving, right? So we don't pit God's justice and his love against one another. Justice is loving. And in this life, we know that to be the case, don't we? Anytime you've had to sit and watch wickedness take place. Maybe you've been in a situation like this. You've had to watch someone you cared about be drawn away from the truth by an evil influence. It's a comfort to God's people. Rest assured, the influencer will bear his penalty. We even have God telling us to take comfort in that in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is where he invites us to go as we continue to live in this present evil age and encounter wickedness, injustice. We rightly find comfort in the promises of God, of his justice. And in fact, it's more than that. If you were to keep reading there in in Romans 12, what you'd find is that that knowledge of God's justice actually frees us up in this life. It allows us to be merciful and loving, even in the face of mistreatment. Because he continues in this way there. He says, never avenge yourselves. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So it's comforting to them to hear these assurances from God through the Apostle Paul. What we've seen so far, these opponents of God's grace in the gospel, they turn away people from obedience. Their influence is infectious. They're destined for judgment. Fourth, we see in verse 11, their message always removes the offense of the cross. Look at verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Now, there's been some difficulty in understanding exactly what Paul is referring to here. It seems the best way to understand what he's saying is he's, he's giving us some insight into the early uh, oppositions of his ministry. Remember, Galatians is probably the first letter he wrote in his ministry. And it seems that what he's encountering is this. He's being accused of inconsistency and hypocrisy. He's being accused of preaching non-circumcision when he's around the Gentiles and circumcision when he's around the Jews. He's Being accused of being a people pleaser. And so here he responds and denies that accusation. If I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? I don't want to spend too much time on this, but let me do read a quick comment to you that was helpful to me. This is what one man wrote in explanation of this situation. He said this, We know from the circumcision of Timothy that Paul had no problems with Jews receiving circumcision as long as it was not required for salvation. Even if Timothy's circumcision was in the future relative to the writing of Galatians, and I'll stop for a second, I think it is, I think Timothy has not been circumcised yet by the time Paul's writing this, but the writer here says, even if that's true, even if that event is still in the future, it probably signals Paul's practice relative to Jewish Christians. Circumcision was acceptable for social and cultural reasons, as long as it was not required for salvation. The Galatian opponents likely charged Paul with hypocrisy and a desire to avoid conflict in leaving out the requirement to be circumcised. But they failed to represent Paul's view fairly, for he always, after his conversion, refused to circumcise if it was required for salvation. And we saw him talk about that back in chapter 2 of Galatians as well. So I think this is the accusation he's responding to. What we need to notice is the point he makes here about the offense of the cross. If I want to avoid persecution, and look, are we likely coming into much, much greater, more explicit times of likely persecution? I think that's, that's inevitable. Uh, if I want to avoid persecution, in one sense, it's not hard. I just need to believe and or speak in a way that removes the offense of the cross, just remove the offense, even keep the cross in some other form, remove the offense that comes from the pure and true gospel of Jesus Christ and you can avoid persecution. They're saying that Paul is doing that. No circumcision to Gentiles, circumcision to Jews and his answer is, if that's true, if that's what I'm doing, why in the world am I being persecuted everywhere I go? There's nowhere Paul went that he did not find persecution. First and foremost on the, on the part of the Jews, who he apparently is preaching circumcision to in order to placate them. Paul says, preaching circumcision is a removal of the offense of the cross. Now, do, do not miss that here, that that's the equation. All right, um, If I still preach circumcision, dot, 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 in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Okay? Removing the offense of the cross is the preaching of circumcision. Right? And that is true for either group, by the way, Gentile or Jew. Certainly negating circumcision was a huge offense to the Jews. They had come to put their hope in things like their identification and safety found in the act of circumcision. And in that covenant relationship. But the negating of circumcision was a stumbling block for Gentiles as well. How could that be? It's it's an obstacle for them because it means, yet again, no man made path to work our way to salvation. We have to understand the extent to which the natural man insists upon finding such a path. Even if it's something as undesirable as circumcision. So intensely do we want in our flesh to establish our own righteousness before God based on our own ability that even if it need come through a rite like circumcision, it still constitutes the removal of the gospel stumbling block because now I've managed to do something to step into God's good favor. Circumcision nullifies the scandal of the cross because it establishes righteousness based on human ability. But I trust that we know, here this morning, brothers and sisters, how much the cross rejects that. The cross of Jesus Christ rejects all and any human attempts to be made right with God. Apart from his work in conversion, we can't bear to hear it. The natural man cannot bear to hear that even their best works are stained with sin and evil. That anything they would seek to do on their own would be insufficient to be in right standing with God. And that the only basis for such a right standing is the cross of Jesus Christ. We can't bear to hear it. And so here's what we find this morning. Opponents of the gospel message of grace uh, may have a great number of differences among them. There's quite a spectrum there. They may be extremely licentious in their living. They may be extremely rigorous in their living. But they will all have this in common. They will have removed the offense of the cross, which comes through its declaration of hopeless inability and complete dependency upon Christ for a grace and a mercy that is undeserved. That's a humbling message. And it will have been erased. And look, it is so important that we understand that this morning precisely what it is that is the stumbling block of the gospel and that the cause of that stumbling isn't finally about actions or behaviors or works but about a posture of humility and grace that one must have if one is to receive this sort of a gift it's crucial that we not confuse that have you ever heard this kind of thing maybe you've maybe you've felt this or thought this yourself just to give you an example well, gosh, what could be so bad about those Mormons? Every Mormon I've ever known is like the nicest person that I've met. How can I really be comfortable saying that there is estrangement from God there? Look at, look at their life. Look at their family. How could I speak of estrangement? What's the answer to that? That's because estrangement was never about being nice. That wasn't the problem at its root. That estrangement is about a saying, no thanks, not needed, to God's offer of grace through the undeserved sacrifice of his son. That's the explanation for the estrangement of sinful man from God. We don't need you. No thank you. If we don't understand the true nature of of the gospel's stumbling block, then we will stumble over those kinds of situations. And if we don't teach our children about the true nature of the gospel stumbling block, they'll go out in the world as they grow and find that there are actually unbelievers who are very nice people and be confused at that and find that somehow to be evidence against what they've been being taught because they've not been taught faithfully about what the the stumbling block actually is at its root. What defines these bringers of a false gospel according to verse 11? It is nothing about the rigor or lack thereof in their lifestyle. It's that what they teach has removed the human pride-destroying offense of the gospel. That leads us fifthly to verse 12. What is said about the opponents here? Let me put it this way, and I'll explain why I'm putting it this way. Opponents of the gospel are on the wrong side of history. That needs some explanation. You don't necessarily get that right away from verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. There are at least two, maybe three things that Paul is consciously doing as he says it like he says it here. The first one is the easiest one to see. He is being unambiguously contemptuous toward these enemies, isn't he? I mean, there's not, there's no getting around it. He is saying what it seems like he's saying. And I think we get a picture of Paul's personality here a little bit. He would have been... An intense person to be around. Uh, he has shown in his letters, he is an incredibly kind man. And he has shown amazing patience to these Galatians here, hasn't he? He's patient. But he was not afraid to show intensity when it mattered. It makes you think of other uh, leaders, not every leader, but other leaders in, in church history. It makes me think of Martin Luther. If you ever read much of some of Luther's interactions with his enemies of the day with Erasmus or even with some brothers, it, it, it got extremely intense. I would venture to say it became sinfully so on Luther's part in some of what he wrote and his vitriol. Um, he, was a, uh, he was a German, yeah, uh, and he was a Lutheran. So there may have been some alcohol involved in some of those dialogues. I have no idea, but you can see it in him. We saw last year in adult Sunday school the video of R.C. Sproul Addressing a crowd, very famous at this point. When he addressed those he was talking to and he said, what's wrong with you people? Remember that? It's one of my favorites. That's a personality, right? There's no getting around it. Paul is displaying a strong intensity as he gives his opinion of these false teachers. Uh, T. David Gordon complains here in the way we translate his statement in our English versions. He complains that we're being a tad too Victorian in our, uh, our translation of this. We'll just leave it at that. Paul's certainly conveying contempt, but what I want you to understand this morning is, that is not the only thing he's doing. He is not, at this point, overwhelmed with emotion and he just throws out some sort of a slur. That's not what Paul is doing here. He has chosen his words carefully to make a particular point, right? Uh, here's one of those points he's making. He is, it seems, intentionally, Referencing Old Testament law. Now, if you've been with us through this study, has he been doing that a lot through this letter? It's Judaizers appealing to the law very wrongly. So he's been doing it all the way through to put them to silence. He's doing it again here. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, which they use in his time, Deuteronomy 23.1. If you were to look there, you would hear that according to the law, it says, no one who is apocopto, it's the word he's used here for them, no one who is apocopto shall be allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord. He's not just throwing out a slur, he's speaking very craftily to this group who was all about cutting, and he's talked about cutting in, and now he's talking about apocopto, and the point is in this statement, I'm pronouncing a curse on these people such that they will be removed from the company of God's people. He just chooses to put it in a very, um, in a very expressive way, right? Uh, th- but he's doing it intentionally. Another thing that he seems to be doing here is making the comment that he is thankful that in God's plan to purify his people, this kind of group will not, if you will, be able to reproduce their kind into the next generation. This is not a rebellion among God's people that is going to perpetuate forever. And it's to that idea that I'm referring, as I've named this fifth thing, saying that these opponents are on the wrong side of history. Theirs who oppose the gospel of God's grace, theirs is the side that will not stand in the judgment, according to Psalm chapter 1. Paul's going to say at the end of this letter, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Listen, and for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. There is no future for, the posture, for their posture toward the gospel because there is no peace or mercy from God for those who oppose the gospel message. They will bear their penalty. Their names will be forgotten, if you will, to history. They will be cut off with no future or posterity. So let's end with this, just a very simple uh, alternative. In light of these five things, what does this mean, our text this morning? about those who love the gospel. Just rattle these off for you. It means these five things. Number one, we will lead others toward rest in Christ. And that posture will bleed out of us in our loving service to one another. That's what's true of us. Number two, rather than infecting others with perversion, we will be faithful ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, he warns us that there will be many who will respond to our message with persecution. But then he says there are others, Matthew five sixteen, who will see your works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. There will be a certain infectious nature to the work that God is doing through us. Number three, we will not bear our penalty. Why not? Well, it's because we'll be too busy forever praising and thanking the one who has already borne it in our place. Ours is a penalty that has not been erased. It has been paid in our place. And so we will not bear our penalty. Number four, we will not hide the offense of the cross. And so we will be persecuted. Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Fifth, finally, we are in the only way that matters, my friends. Remember this today. Because we hear this line all the time, don't we? We are in the only way that matters. On the right side of history. And let us end with this. I mentioned Psalm 1 earlier. Speaking of that historic viewpoint. Psalm 1 verses 5 and 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. Would you pray with me? Father, we who are your children, who are yours by the mercy you have shown us in your son, we rejoice with trembling this morning. We thank you for the assurances that you give us, that you who begin a good work in your children, who give us your spirit as a down payment on our inheritance, you are committed to bringing to completion the work that you begin. Lord, we pray that you would be working in us through this feeding of your word, that we would be a people more and more all the time who love one another and in intentional ways that the world might see and praise our Heavenly Father, that we would be those who do not become sinfully burdened and plagued with a kind of guilt that is unbefitting one who has been forgiven. Lord, help us to hate our sin. And always as we see it, to take it back to the foot of the cross where we receive mercy and grace. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.